0: Welcome to the Watchers of the Skies program. I'm Carlos Campo coming to you from Ashland University with my friend and colleague, Dennis Montacruces. Dennis, welcome.
1: Thank you, good morning.
0: It's a great day. You know, we have really talented people in the studio. Claudia, who's on the tennis team, is with us on that camera. We also have Zach and Jonathan. Ella is running the show. And Logan is on camera there. I see Ella on campus all the time. She's clicking photos at the football games and a journalist's journalist. So we've got a talented team here today. You know, here in Ashland, we believe that it's important to teach students how to think, but not what to think. It's one of the things we purport to do, but not in Florida. No, I I shouldn't shouldn't say that to my good friends in Florida, actually uh, have some good very good friends and family there. I'm a Floridian by birth. I heard from Ron DeSantis. He and Marco Rubio, who is my friend, uh, had resounding victories recently. You know, they're saying that these are the prototypes for the new politician. And what is the new byline that DeSantis has said? Florida is the state where woke comes so to, to,
1: die. to, to die. die. Yes.
0: Well... We don't know if that's uh, the truth or not, but, you know, there's actually a legislator that wrote an article. His name is Anthony Sabatini, and it caught our attention because we're watching this guy's dentist. Right. That's what we and it's, do.
1: And it's a tennis name, too. So. And there yeah.
0: we go. I hadn't yeah. really thought about that. That's right. Had absolutely nothing to, do, it, to nope. do with it, Claudia. Sorry. But the truth is the, the legislator here is, you know, some would say he's overstepping. Others would say this is exactly what he should be doing. And one of the things he's talking about are colleges and universities. And Florida has been clear with their state schools to say, you are about, and I'm quoting from Mr. Sabatini, you're about expanding knowledge and forging citizens rather than appeasing partisan interests and accrediting agencies. And the state's institutions of higher learning will now be far less inclined to act as ideological training grounds, discriminating against individuals and groups because of certain beliefs. So, interesting rhetoric there, Dennis. We've heard a lot of this before. You know, this idea of forging citizens, that's a tough one, right? That phrase, the question is, citizens are being forged one way or the other. Forge, right. Forging as a, as a modifier implies some things. What are your thoughts there? Can we come together as a state institution in Ohio or Florida and agree about what makes for a forged citizen?
1: <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> right.
0: That's part of the struggle, isn't it? We're, we, yeah. We have trouble. I, I
1: mean, you can have a very thin, let's say, a very thin view of what makes for a good citizen. But beyond that, I mean, it's it, it's tough. It's It's a very, well, it's pluralistic. I mean, it's very polarized politically. So it's difficult. I mean, I think that's part of what, what underlies this slogan about teaching how to think rather than what to think is not just, let's say, do humility on our part, but also a recognition that it would be a, a dismal failure and just alienating to try it in the first place. So, you know, we do our best, we're trying to inculcate values that are hopefully largely shared But um, and and let the results kind of go where they will, and assume that people of good conscience are trying to implement them.
0: Well, I think this is a very important discussion. It really is, and I know we want to get to Mr. Sabatini's proposal. But you know, we certainly believe, Dennis, that educating students effectively makes for better citizens. Right? I know effectively might be the key term there, but an educated citizenry is a much more difficult citizenry to. Rule, uh, you know. I, I know that. I often talk of Cuba, a place where my father was born, and a place where an ideologue forged his own view of citizenry. That, to me, has crippled that island for quite some time. It's much more difficult to do so in a populace that is that is trained, that is thoughtful, that is certainly in opposition to tyrants because they 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 are educated. Now, again, I know that. You know, if you look at the leaders in Nazi Germany, most of those men were quite educated, so right. there's was, not a one-to-one there.
1: Yeah. I was, I was going to be a little bit mischievous because there are studies, for instance, where they've shown, let's say uh, let's say you take um, two groups and you have them read something about climate change. So you have one, and you divide them by whether they're leaning in... in towards believing that it's real, that anthropogenic um, global warming is a real thing and those who are skeptical. You have them read articles, uh, let's say arguing against whatever their position is. Right. And then they hold it more strongly after having read it. So having an educated citizenry may or may not help it, probably helps to some extent, but also a virtuous citizenry I think is also, Critical
0: there. And I think there is something inherent in what Sabatini's getting at that would say that virtue is a critical part of yep. what is occurring. And it's much more difficult at a state school to promote virtue right. and to, uh, to, to agree what that's all about. Not true here at Ashland yep. University, where we are founded on certain values and virtues that continue to permeate our campus. But let's get to Sabatini's yes. concern. His concern is around bias reporting systems. Sometimes, you know, these are you know, bias response teams on colleges and university campuses. He quotes, uh, you know, a, a statistic where 800 and some schools are reviewed or, you know, there's some sort of survey and about half, maybe a little more than more half, than half yeah. say that we've got one of these. Right. Well, tell our listeners, what is a bias response team? What are they looking for and how do they operate?
1: Right. And, and not only that, but the these these things are multiplying like rabbits. I mean, it more or less doubled in a two to three year period, true, which is extraordinary so um, what they 're trying to do is to decide well are there let's say is there speech that is in some way considered as offensive mm-hmm. so for example is it is it hostile is it negative is it is it something that would be considered harmful to the student so it could be let's say some sort of uh, something that's interpreted as racially offensive yes. and as insensitive in some other way to, uh, to, to an individual in terms of their group identity, right. primarily, uh, even politically. Mm-hmm. So if these things occur, they can report it to an administrator. And this is, again, who's they? Who, who, who? So the student okay. well, or, or anyone who hears about it could Correct. report it to an administrator. Right. And, uh, and then that, that student or faculty member will have at least some sort of record of this on, on their file which is, of course, you know, kind of a, a worrisome thing. So, I mean, my the first thing I thought of when I, when I saw this was good old East Germany, mm. where you had the, uh, the so-called Stasi, the secret police, yes. and where they would encourage citizens to report on each other mm-hmm. if they said something that was against the party. And so you had this climate of just paranoia where people are, of course, self-policing and not saying anything at all. So... I mean, that's kind of the basic setup, and it's one of these things where, on the one hand, of course, you want their people to be polite and to be considerate for yes. those feelings. But this is going beyond that. This is just, if you, if you don't do this, then you're actually being reported on. You're having a mark. This is something that's going on your record. I don't know uh, to what degree you sort of have a tolerance, where if you go beyond a certain point, you face some kind of repercussions, but it's still worrisome. And it's also a bit like the, uh, the social credit score in China mm. where the government monitors, you know, right. do you do these positive things? Do you speak against the party? Uh, do you have, let's say a shirt where you've got um, Winnie the Pooh kind of, you know, this uh, sort of veiled insult at uh, Xi Jinping, their, their, their president. So it's, it's, uh, it definitely is intended to, to, to squelch a certain sort of speech in favor of the, the, um, the concerns and feelings of, of certain students.
0: Right. But does it have a chilling effect more generally on free speech on right. campus? Right. I think that's the question. And, you know, part of my concern when I read about these teams is that anonymous reports can go forward. And I think that's always difficult because when, when you're going to call someone else out for something that has a consequence, as you mentioned... I, I think you need to stand up and say, I reported this. Here's my concern. I think it's just a healthy practice mm-hmm. because now, you know, just reviewing one of the websites at Smith College at Smith and lots of other places, anonymous is fine. They kind of I outline the groups that have protected rights, but it's very open-ended. So you file a report. It then goes, I think in their case, all of the requests go through the vice president for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And if they believe that it should go to the team, then the team is brought in, the team reviews the claim, and then they move forward with some sort of sanction or consequence. It just, just talk about administrative burden. Oh my goodness. I mean, I I don't know uh, in particular how many cases they have in a year. I did see that several schools were reporting increases, like you're talking about, 200, 300, 400 increases, percent increases in this reporting. And so when I think of what we spend money on in higher education, and maybe in a few years, the schools that do this effectively will have research that shows, hey, look at the difference on our campus. We have minimized hate speech and, you know, these kinds of things. And that would, of course, be lauded by all of us. But I'm skeptical, Dennis, that this will be as effective as we think and that it is a good investment because as we've talked about, now you've, you've put the team, right? Now that team has a certain onus upon them, right? So we are deciding, hmm, let's see. They are aware of who has been called out. They're not aware who've made, who's made the claim. Mm-hmm. Are they not human beings that are perhaps already biased toward that person for some other reason? And now they're called upon to act in a fashion that is completely objective? And then what's at stake? I don't believe that bias response sanctions have been built into things like annual reviews, but they they could be, maybe they are at some schools. Could they be a factor for tenure for a faculty Mm -hmm. member? If you have a certain number of these, would you be then denied tenure? These are all questions that remain. I just have a strong concern, especially because where did, the, where did they originate from? Where did this idea gain such traction, whereas now they seem to be taking over college campuses? And to what end? Where does this end, and how does this logically improve the climate on campus?
1: Right. Uh, I mean, I mean already the, the DEI apparatus is, is colossal. Uh, I forgot the number. You may remember, may remember it offhand. How many of these administrators are there at the University of Michigan? It was some 90,
0: 93, I think, is what I heard. It's certainly okay. in that range, 75 to 125, something like
1: that. Right. So, I mean, what I wonder, I mean, so the cynical interpretation is this, that you can't legally have viewpoint discrimination. But what you can do, or you can yep. try to do, right. is to find proxies for it mm-hmm. that will have the same effect. Now, again, obviously, you want to have... You want to have a climate where people do feel they feel safe, they feel accepted, they feel like they can fully participate. But if if the net effect is that only certain things can be can be said because someone can interpret it wrongly, then you don't have that. Uh, I was thinking, for instance, would let, let's say in a dorm, some people are having a discussion about Charles Murray's old "The Bell Curve." Sure. Would that count as a bias right. um, incident? So so. Murray, for those who don't know, wrote a book about 20, 30 years ago now. And among other things, he said, okay, there are these differences between different racial groups with IQ. And you know, is this genetic? So he tends to think there's some genetic component to it, at least on the average. So of course, lots of people hated this and made plenty of good arguments against it, right? So they think this doesn't work for this reason and that reason. Sure, But he was at least trying as a scholar. I mean, he's got all the educational credentials. He does. He was trying to make, again, a statistical argument, trying to deal with objections and so on. I mean, it was an academic work. Can despise his conclusions. Lots of people do, regardless of their politics. But to just bring this up, does that automatically become an instance of this sort of sort of bias where, right. ah, these guys are talking about it, so really they they are white supremacists. And sure. so... You know, I, I as an African-American, if I'm an African-American, feel unsafe. And so I'm going to go and re- report this. So right. can that happen? And if so, I mean, what does that mean for, the, for these guys? You, you, you can't discuss these theories? I mean, sure. how far does that go?
0: Well, I know a specific example in my own life was fairly recently, Harvard, a Harvard student had put forward as their dissertation a review of IQ, related to immigration issues, and they were particularly making the case that the U.S. should do a better job. As a matter of fact, former President Trump talked about this at some length, this idea that our immigration policies should be linked at some level to the quality of the person or their background. And I was, of course, I found that extraordinarily offensive. I found this person's dissertation offensive because he went on to say, the, here are these countries, here are their average IQs, and here are the proportions at which they are now immigrating into the U.S., and we need to control this. And it infuriated me, but the idea that he wouldn't have the right to say that mm-hmm. or I in response to that, et cetera, would he now you know, be uh, sanctioned because of it? See, and, and I know I'm really going to sound old when I say this, Dennis, but it feels a little bit like back in my day, right, that's what you did. Right. So you called someone out if you had a problem with what someone was saying about another group, whether they were in a protected class or not. If it was just flat out rude, you said you spoke up. Mm-hmm. Hey, that what, Hey, that's not right. You shouldn't have said that. And it feels as though we got along OK or maybe not so OK. was was there a gap in the way our society was formed, the way we think about speech and one another, that we need a bias response team to step in? Oh, wait a minute. No one could have said to me in a class or in some other setting that that wasn't appropriate. And here's why I think why. To me, that give and take, rather than, oh, you're going to get an email from this team, and that's going to reframe and reform your behavior, to me, that's less effective than the give and take that, it felt like was part of what a college environment's all about.
1: Right. No, I mean, if if, if the guy makes a garbage argument, you call it a garbage argument, right. and then prove that it's a garbage yes. argument. So, another problem with this kind of approach, where you try to you know smash the person with a hammer, is that the argument hasn't been addressed. Right. In, in a case where there's an argument, as opposed to just someone sure. speaking crudely, uh, the argument's still there. Right. The response to Holocaust denial is to say, "Hey, here's a ton of documentary evidence." Here's why your arguments to try to undermine the value of that evidence don't work, et cetera. And and likewise for for this, right? So you say, well, okay, here you've got facts that seem to be correct, but here are the interpretations you're drawing. It's not warranted by the data. And you you beat the argument, right? I mean, if you just, you know, the old joke, right? So, um, you know, someone's, some speaker is banging the pulpit, right? So he has a little note, weak point, bang pulpit, (laughs) you know? No, I mean, make, make a strong point instead. Sure. I mean, that's that's what academia is supposed to be about. So let's go way, way back. This this is kind of an interesting practice that I think would be a really cool idea to to reinstate. So back in the medieval days. Oh boy. Yes. Now way you've got about back. two
0: minutes left on the show, so don't kill me now. With I, that. I won't. Oh, all right.
1: No, but 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 I think this ex- exemplifies the right attitude. Great. So they would have these public disputations. They were called quodlibetal questions, which just basically means ask me anything. Hmm. So you have these on the internet, but you would have the. Uh, you know, the, the so-called master, the, the, the tenured professor, let's right. say, and you would have his underlings first try to answer questions from anybody. And then after they did their best, then the, the, the master would go up and, and give his best answers. So any kind of argument, any, any objection, throw it at him. I like it. Right? This, this would be, I mean, obviously it's not going to happen, but something like that, that exemplifies the right attitude. So, you know, kind of like bring it on, bring let's, it on. Let's, let's, let's deal with it.
0: I like it. You know, we often talk about safe spaces on college campuses and it, you know, the very act of learning is difficult and dangerous. It is, you know, just ask Socrates. He was one of those (laughs) masters, right? It was difficult and dangerous for him. And I I understand, you know, as a Hispanic male, what some students feel in, in terms of bias and feeling unsafe. But the reality is, I believe that's counterbalanced by what you gain in what is an environment that reflects the social environment you're going to and so that's the one of the reasons on our campus we have been loath to institute those kinds of things we feel as though it's important to be part of the mix and there are going to be times that you'll be offended around your race or other issues Mm -hmm. but that's part of growing it's part of learning and it's part of responding in a way that still respects the other person Well, it's, uh, again, not a simple thing. I think as we've considered bias response teams on our own campus, we think there are better ways to get at this. Mm -hmm. We do think it's important for students to speak out, for faculty and staff to speak out, because we don't grow as a community if we don't address some of these issues. So that's how we're going to deal with it here. We'll see what happens in Florida. So we'll see what happens with Mr. Sabatini as he tries to pass this legislation and what impact it might have and how it might then spread to other states, including Ohio. We'll bring it up if it does, because we are watching the skies here at Ashland University. Please join us next time for the Watchers of the Skies program here from AUTV20.